Well, welcome to Christ Community Church this morning. As, as Casey mentioned, my name is Brent Stanfield, and, and I have uh, at different times been uh, one of the pastors here at Christ Community Church, one of the elders, and certainly one of the members here. And it is a joy to be here on stage this morning uh, to preach the gospel, uh, to declare God's Word, and I am excited to preach through one of my favorite uh, chapters in the Bible, especially in the Gospel of Mark, which is a uh, Mark chapter 13, the Olivet Discourse. But before we get there, man, what an exciting week it's been in Houston. I mean, we've had Halloween, uh, probably the highlight of the week for, for most of you, for most of us, has been uh, the, the Astros after 55 years finally being World Series champions. I mean, uh, that is an exciting thing. Uh, and, and what an exciting series. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Give them a round of applause. That's awesome. After the year we've had, uh, I think we deserve, uh, we deserve a world championship. Uh, but one of the highlights that, that may have been overlooked by many that, uh, uh, that, that still happened this week on Tuesday alongside Halloween was actually Reformation Day. Now, how many of you have heard of Reformation Day? How many of you are familiar with what Reformation Day is? It is the 500-year anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. And on December, on October 31st, that's right, on October 31st in 1517, Martin Luther, a, a German monk, uh, nailed his 95 theses to the church door there at Wittenberg, Germany, and he began a, uh, to dispute some of the practices that he observed in the Catholic Church of his day. And his primary concern, the primary issue that concerned Martin Luther was the loss of the gospel was the loss of the preaching of the gospel. We sang a song this morning, and the song that we sang just before the baby dedication, the child dedication, was, Who can I trust but you? And what Luther wanted to make clear is that the only one we can trust is God. And the only thing we can trust is the Word of God. That the Word of God is what we place our trust in. And one of the great products of the Protestant Reformation was what you may have heard of, it's called the, the five solas of the Reformation, and that word solas is a Latin word for alone, and so they're five statements of what we trust in alone, and here's the, here they are, the five solas are this, through Scripture alone, through the Word of God alone, we learn that we are saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. For the glory of God alone. We trust in God alone for our salvation. We trust in thus saith the Lord, not in church councils or in popes or even preachers here on the stage, but in the Word of God alone. That is the, the whole purpose of the Reformation, is to return the gospel, the Word of God, back to the center of church life. Our confidence is in the Word of God, not in the Word of men. You see, even, even up here, you're led at some level by, by fallible men, by fallible preachers. Um, and that's important to realize as we come to a text like Mark chapter 13. Mark chapter 13, which is one of my favorite in the Gospel of Mark, is actually one of the most contentious passages in the Gospel of Mark. There are many different views as to how we interpret Mark chapter 13, which is Jesus's greatest prophecy. And over the next several weeks, Casey and I are going to be looking at Mark chapter 13, and we're going to be walking through it and giving you our thoughts, our interpretation of Mark chapter 13. But as we, as we do that, I think it's fair to point out that we're fallible men. We're fallible men. And so we can place our trust in the Word of God, but as you go out there, and I hope this is just the beginning of your study into Mark chapter 13, and as you read different things and people who say different things, I hope you'll give us some grace. We're doing our best to, to tackle some very difficult passages in Scripture. Well, one of, one of, my, one of my favorite stories, examples, I guess, of, of my own fallibility uh, is a, from a couple years ago, uh, right after I came on staff here as a pastor, and I was getting to know many of you and, and, and developing friendships with many of you, and and I was very early, young as a pastor, and I received a text from some members of our congregation, 
And the text is one that pastors always hate to get, but we're honored to get, uh, to walk through difficult things with people. It was a text from a young couple who was having difficulties in their marriage. And this is the first one, the first time that I had received this kind of, of text from a member of the church. And so I wanted to handle it well, so I, I received the text, and I was on my way to Starbucks, and I got out of the car in Starbucks, and I didn't answer right away. I went to go order my uh, coffee from the, from the barista, and as I was standing in line, my phone started buzzing again. It was, it was a constant buzzing of, of different texts coming into me. And it was apparently one of my friends had gotten a raise at work or it had some kind of success at work, and everybody was congratulating them on this, on this text string. And of course, I wanted to jump in on the action, so I picked up my phone, opened up my messages app, and began searching for a GIF, you know, one of those moving pictures that, uh, where, the, where the characters do something repeatedly over and over again. So I, I found the appropriate GIF. It was a, a GIF of Michael Scott with a bottle of champagne, and he was spraying it in the air like, like this. You know, probably looked a lot like the Astros locker room after they won the World Series. And it said, congratulations. And I selected that one, and I put it in my messaging app and sent it off. I ordered my coffee, went to sit down at the table, and began to think, th think seriously about how I was going to respond to this young couple who was telling me they were having going through some difficult times in their marriages. And I opened up my computer, started looking at my messages, and there it was. Pastor Brent, we need advice. We need counseling. We're having some really difficult marital struggles. And there's Michael Scott with his bottle of champagne. Congratulations! Congratulations! Spraying it in the air. You see, I'm a fallible man. I, I make mistakes. And fortunately, that young couple forgave me. They, they understood. They thought it was funny. They thought it was great that, uh, that I had messed up in that way. They totally got it. But I'm a fallible man. And that's important to know. That's, a, that's an honest admission when we come to a text like Mark chapter 13 and we're dealing with difficult issues, that it's the Word of God that we trust, not the preachers. Now, we're going to do our best here to go through Mark chapter 13 and explain to you the context the things that are going on here, uh, but as you read different things, as you see different things, it's fair to, to dig into these even deeper and go farther than we can go here today. So as we get to Mark chapter 13, one of the things that I want to point out about, it's very important to understand about this passage, uh, is that it really contains two separate parts. The first is a public teaching that Jesus gives to everybody, and that's found in verses 1 and 2. Then the second part of it is a private teaching that he gives to three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John. And that's verses 3 through 37. But both are important. Both are important. As a matter of fact, the first two verses, the public teaching that Jesus gives here, informs everything else that comes. And so what I want to do a little bit today is spend some time on those first two verses to help us understand what it is Jesus is talking about, what it is he's, he's explaining to his disciples. And so as we read verses 1 through 2, here's what we read. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Jesus responds to this man who comes to him and says, look at this incredible structure here, Jesus. He's walking out of the temple, and there is the temple complex, this enormous temple made of these huge stones. And this man is just marveling at it. He's saying, Look at these incredible buildings. And Jesus' response to the young man is they're all going to be destroyed. They're all going to be torn down brick by brick. To understand a little bit about what's going on here, I want to look at a few other passages to help you understand the import of what Jesus is saying. The first is just over in John chapter 2. John chapter 2 is... is I think, a parallel account of what's going on here. Jesus is in the temple. 
He's in the temple, and what he sees in the temple are the money changers, the merchants who are selling to the people of God their sacrifices and who are ripping them off, who are there to make a profit as these earnest and honest people come to give, offer their sacrifices to God. And he is angered by that. He's angered by that. So what does he do? He gets a, he gets a whip. He begins to overturn the tables of the money changers and he drives them out of the temple. And we see this in John chapter 2, verses 18. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us to do these things? What gives you the authority to come in here and to drive us out of the temple? Show us your badge. What gives you the authority to do something like this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days... I will raise it up. You want to see a sign? You want to see a sign? I'll show you a sign. And destroy this temple. And in three days, I'll raise it up. And so they mock him. And the Jews said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. Now I want you to go over to Mark chapter 14. You see, it's these proclamations, it's these public teachings of Jesus that this temple is going to be destroyed. It's his public proclamation that he is the temple that is eventually going to lead to his death. And so we pick up in Mark chapter 14, towards the end of the chapter, in verse 55 where Jesus is on trial before the Jewish council, before the Sanhedrin. And they're looking for a pretext to murder him. They're looking for a reason to put him to death, to get rid of this Jesus. And we see in verse 55, now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death but they found none. They couldn't find anybody to testify about him clearly enough about something that they could put him to death. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is this that these men testify about you? Now why is this a big deal? Why is this getting everybody so worked up? And, and here's the answer. Here's the simple answer. The temple is where the glory of God was supposed to dwell among men. The temple is where the glory of God was supposed to be. Let's, let's take a quick walk through biblical history. You all remember Adam and Eve, right? Adam and Eve were made in the image of God. The glory of God was supposed to be in Adam and Eve. But sin got in the way. Their disobedience got in the way. And they were forced out of God's presence. You all remember in, in the Old Testament that after the Exodus, after God releases his people from Egypt, he went before them in a pillar of cloud and a fire. The glory of God went before his people. And later it was found in the Ark of the Covenant, which went before God's people. But the sin of the people got in the way. Their disobedience got in the way. And there's a story in, in 1 Samuel chapter 4 where the Ark of the Covenant, they, the people of Israel take it out before them just assuming that God's going to allow them to win because His glory is with them. And God delivers them over to a stinging defeat and the Ark of the Covenant is captured and taken away. 
There's a story in 2 Chronicles chapter 5 where Solomon, David's son, finally builds a temple. He finally builds a temple where the glory of God can dwell among the people of Israel. And the Ark of the Covenant, which has been recaptured, is brought to the temple. And we read in that story that as they're consecrating the temple, as they're opening up the doors to the temple, they've just finished building it, and they're singing praises to God. And we read of this. When the song was raised with trumpets and cymbals and other musical instruments and praise to the Lord, and they're singing, For He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. The house, the house of the Lord, was filled with a cloud. So the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. That's the history of the glory of God among His people. Is that the final resting place of God's glory was supposed to be in His temple. But sin got in the way of that one as well. Because of the disobedience of the people, God sent the Babylonians as a judgment upon Israel. And in 586, they captured the city of Jerusalem and destroyed Solomon's temple. And years later, over the times, a second temple was built. The second temple was built and it was expanded. And that's the temple that Jesus is talking about in Mark chapter 13. And the hope of the Jewish people, the hope of the Jewish people for this temple was that one day the glory of God would return to the temple. That one day when the Messiah came, when the Christ appeared, he would bring the glory of God back to the temple. Maybe even set up his own throne room there in the temple. And that the kingdom of God would go out, that the Jews would overthrow their Roman captors. And that the kingdom of God would spread throughout the whole world with its capital right there in the temple. The Messiah was supposed to return the glory of God to the temple. And so here the testimony against Jesus isn't that he's saying he's going to return the glory of God to the temple. It's that he's saying he's going to destroy the temple. Do you see the seriousness of the charge? Do you see the reason why people might be worked up about this? And so the chief priest asks, have you no answer to make? Was it, what is it that these men testify against you? But in verse 61, we see Jesus' answer. And I want you to, I want to try to give you a picture of the of Jesus' answer here, the seriousness of it. Jesus remained silent when the chief high priest asked him these questions. So the high priest asks him a very direct question. He says to him this, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And finally Jesus replies, and here's what he said. His first response, he gives three responses, three answers. His first is, I am. I am. Now this one is a little more subtle. If you don't know, or if you're not familiar with the biblical language, you might miss the subtlety of what Jesus is saying here when he says, I am. The phrase in Greek that he uses is, ego imi, I am. It's the same phrase that if, if you go back to the translations, remember when Moses is standing before the burning bush and God is telling him, go free my people from Egypt? And Moses asks God, he says, who do I tell them sent me? What's your name? And God's response to Moses is, I am. That's my name. And here Jesus, in response to this question from the high priest, are you the Christ? Are you the Son of God? He answers, I am. 
Now, maybe that's too subtle. Maybe that's not direct enough. You know, he could just be saying, I am, maybe. But if that's too subtle, his next reply is not. He says to the high priest, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power. Jesus, in this moment, is standing in front of the entire Jewish council. And they are sitting in judgment over him. He's on trial. Jesus is standing in front of his jury, and they are putting him on trial. And what Jesus is saying here with this statement, that you will see me sitting at the right hand of power, is he's saying, you're going to see me in the judgment seat beside my Father at the right hand of power in judgment over you. Those of you who know me know that I practice law, and I've been doing so for 12 years, and once in those 12 years have I come close, close to being held in contempt of court. And I remember I made a statement to a judge, and I saw her eyes kind of pop out of her sockets. And I was worried I was about to get fined and maybe sent off to the to the jail to think through what I had said. Maybe the next time I'll tell the judge when she gives me a bad ruling, well, one day I'm going to be sitting in judgment over you. I don't think that would go over very well. And so you can imagine the high priest and his eyes popping out of his sockets as Jesus says, you sit in judgment over me now. Well, one day you're going to see me in judgment over you. But then the real reply comes. Then the real reply comes. He finally, he says to him, and you're going to see me coming with the clouds of heaven. Remember back in Second Chronicles chapter 5, when the clouds entered the temple, when the glory of God entered the temple, Jesus turns that on his head and he says, you're going to see the glory of God on me. Not in this temple, but in me. And at that reply, the high priest tears his clothes and yells, blasphemy, blasphemy. You're not Christ you're Antichrist. How dare you talk about the temple in that way? Jesus provokes his own death because he knows they're not looking for the glory of God. They're looking for their own glory, for the glory of their temple, for the glory of man and not the glory of God found in Christ. And so they reject him. We read this. The high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving of death. That's what we're talking about here in Mark chapter 13. When Jesus announces the destruction of the temple, what he's doing is he's announcing something is radically about to change. Something about the way God interacts with men is about to change radically. Jesus is introducing a radical new way in which the glory of God will dwell among men. Not in a temple made with human hands, but in the person and work of Jesus Christ. You see, the, the glory of God can't be seen in idols that are carved with human hands. The glory of God can't be seen in a mural painted on a wall. It's not seen in fine vessels made of silver and gold, these elements of worship that you might find in a temple. That's not where the glory of God is. 
The glory of God is not in massive buildings and huge structures. That's not where we see it. The glory of God is in the person and work of Jesus Christ, in His life, in His sinless life, in His death on the cross, and the breaking of His body, and the shedding of His blood for His people, and the power of His resurrection, and in the good news of His salvation of His people. That's where the glory of God will be. Not in the temple, but in the temple, in Jesus Christ. And so this man comes to him, this disciple comes to him in Mark chapter 13 and says, look at these wonderful buildings. Consider the works of man's hands. All the things that we have built. Look at this beautiful temple. And Jesus responds to him, all of it will be thrown down. But Christ will be lifted up. That's the context for the rest of the passage. That is the element that you need to understand for the rest of the passage to make any sense. So here's the question. Do you marvel at the work of Christ? Do you see his glory? Do you take the time to look deeply at what Christ has done to examine it? Or are you more caught up in the things of this world? I think the key to answering those questions is found in the second part of the passage. And we're going to take a look at that next, the second part. And as we look at this second part of the passage, I want you to try to remember two things. And here are the two things that I think are very important for you to remember as we look at these next 35 verses. And the first thing is this, that we are not the primary intended audience for this teaching. This is a private conversation between Jesus and three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John. It's not a public teaching to the masses, and it's not something that we should take as, well, this directly applies to us. Jesus is secretly, I know he's talking to his three disciples, but he's secretly talking to us. The second thing you need to remember is this. Jesus is talking to these three men about something they will personally experience. Something they will personally experience. All of us have, over the past several months, have probably, to some extent, experienced the difficulty of, of natural disaster, right? We've all been through Hurricane Harvey, and although we may not have been directly affected, it altered lives in many ways. It threw us off our schedules. It was unsettling, to say the least. Here the disciples are. I think the reason why Jesus gives this private teaching to these three men is because imagine, as much as that overturned your life for just a season, imagine the uprooting of everything you know to be true. Everything you've come to believe in. Imagine all of that. And imagine being dragged before councils and before trials and, and being persecuted, being kicked out of your home becoming destitute. The purpose of Jesus' private instruction here to these men is to give them encouragement. Because all this is about to happen to them. And he wants to leave them with encouragement. So there's some things I want you to notice as we read through these, these next few verses. And here they are. What will it, will, what will it be like for these men? What will they experience? And then the second thing is, how should they respond to it? So let's look at verse verse 3. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives, opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew, there's four men, sorry about that, asked him, see, I'm, I'm fallible, I told you, I told you, asked him privately, tell us when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished. See, they're mainly concerned with this. When will this destruction of the temple happen? 
what are the signs for the destruction? You just, you just made this incredible claim. I mean, for us, it would be like someone in 1980 one day saying, you know what, one day these world trades, they're all going to come down in our lifetime. Now, if, if it was somebody just off the street who said that, we'd probably just dismiss it. That's ridiculous. But if it's someone who you've been walking with for three years, who has shown you amazing things, who has fed 5,000 people, who has walked on water, who has healed the sick and raised the dead, you'd sit up and take notice. And you'd ask, what are going to be the signs? When is this going to happen? How is this going to happen? And so Jesus begins to instruct these men personally, and he says this, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places, there will be famines. These are but the beginnings of the birth pangs. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all the nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. So Jesus, in this teaching, says this. Here's the things you're going you're gonna to see. Here are the things you're going to experience. You're going to experience false prophets. You're going to experience wars and rumors of wars. You're going to experience natural disasters, famines, and earthquakes. You're going to experience persecution. You're going to experience being arrested and dragged before tribunals and councils, before kings and judges and governors. You're going to be beaten in the synagogue. You're going to encounter trials of every kind, including the betrayals, even of friends and of family. You're going to experience all of those things but here is how you are to respond to those things. You see, this is an encouragement to them who are going to go through these things. It's an encouragement to these men. And his response, he's going to say, you're going to respond like this, do not be alarmed. Do not be alarmed. Be on your guard. Do not be anxious about what you're going to say. Endure to the end. You will be my witnesses to declare the gospel to all nations. That is how they are to respond to the things they will personally experience. How do you not be alarmed? How do you not be anxious? How do you bear up under that kind of persecution? How do you endure to the end? Jesus did not leave his disciples alone. He, he mentions in this passage he's going to send to them the Holy Spirit. But one of the things that the disciples testify about, one of the things they are quick to point out, one of the things that gives them strength to endure, to not be anxious, is that they have seen His glory. 
John tells us in John 1, chapter 14, we have seen His glory. Peter, in, in 2 Peter verses, chapter 1, verses 16, says this, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. For we were eyewitnesses to his majesty. They had seen the glory of God. And once you have seen the glory of God in Christ Jesus, you have nothing to fear. When you have seen the glory of God in Jesus, when you have understood the gospel, you have nothing to fear. False prophets, wars, natural disasters, trials, persecutions, betrayals, all of those are very fearful things. All of those are, are very scary things. But they pale in comparison to the glory of God in Christ. Once you have taken hold of the meaning of the resurrection, why fear death? Once you have seen the power of God in the risen Christ, once you have come to know the King of kings and the Lord of lords, why fear earthly kings? Why fear their power when you've seen the power of God? It's like the old hymn says, Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look in his face. Then the things of this world grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Once you've seen the glory of Christ, you have nothing to fear. But ladies and gentlemen, once you have seen the glory of Christ, you must declare it. You must declare it. As I've mentioned a few minutes ago, these are things that the apostles actually experienced. Peter, James, John, and Andrew, they actually experienced these things. They would encounter false prophets. They would live in a time in which there were wars and rumors of wars. They would experience natural disasters. They would experience the most intense time of the persecution of the church that has ever existed. If there was a moment in world history, where the church could have been snuffed out, could have ended through persecution, this was the time. They were beaten in synagogues. They were delivered over countless times for trial. And in each one of those times, they bore witness to God. Peter, James, and Andrew would be killed for their testimony, for their witness. But John, John would live to see more. As a matter of fact, John would actually live to see Jesus' prediction here about the temple come to pass. In 66 AD, the Jews revolted against the Romans. And for a brief period, a very brief period, they actually kicked the Romans out of Judea. That period was short-lived. The Roman emperor Nero sent an army to reconquer Judea. And for a three-and-a-half-year period, a war raged in Judea, one of the most brutal wars in all of history, in which the Romans conquered city after city, massacred thousands, if not millions, of Jews along the way, untold suffering. And in 70 A.D., one of the most significant dates in all of history, in 70 A.D., John would actually bear witness, would actually be alive as the Roman armies surrounded Jerusalem, laid siege to it, and over the course of about a year, destroyed the countryside, then conquered the city, destroyed the city, killed millions of Jews, took thousands of Jews, took thousands more into captivity and slavery, and pulled down the temple brick by brick. John actually lived to see Jesus' prophecy 
vindicated. To see Jesus' prediction of the temple come true. But Peter, James, John, and Andrew would live to see one other thing. They would live to see the gospel proclaimed to all nations. One of the most remarkable things as you continue to read the New Testament is the expansion of God's kingdom from a Jewish kingdom to a worldwide kingdom. When you read through the gospel or the book of Acts, one of the things you see, one of the remarkable things is that the gospel is preached not just to the Jews, but to the Gentiles, to all the nations of the world. And as you read through Acts, you see how stunned even the apostles are about it. How amazing it is to them that God is now including all of the nations into his kingdom. That's something that is going on even to this day. We are actually a part of that. We are here today to declare the glory of God in Christ Jesus because the gospel has gone out to all nations, even to us. We are a part of that. So here's the question I have for you. Have you seen the glory of God in Jesus Christ? Have you seen His glory? Have you considered His perfect and sinless life? Have you paused? Have you really paused to consider and think about His death for you? The fact that He took your punishment the breaking of his body and the shedding of his blood for the forgiveness of your sins? Have you considered the power of his resurrection, his victory over sin and death? A power that can only come from God himself. A power that is just a foretaste of the resurrection and redemption that's to come. Before you answer that too quickly, before you just say, oh yeah, I've seen that, consider how easy it is to know the words but miss the meaning. Here's one thing that'll help you think through whether you understand the meaning. Do you live to bear witness to that glory? Is that the purpose of your life? Is the purpose of your life to declare the glory of God in Christ Jesus by making the gospel known? Is that really a priority for you? Let me talk about what that might look like. Let me talk about what that might look like. We had a, a wonderful presentation here this morning of families who came forward to dedicate their children, to dedicate their children to God. If you live to reveal the glory of God, then as a parent, your greatest desire will be that your children see that glory to see that your children understand the gospel. And that will be more important to you than their GPA, than what sports they play, what college they get into, what job they get. That they'll know the King of glory. You'll devote time to that and you'll spend your nights teaching them the gospel and bringing them to church. And not just bringing them to church, but coming to church yourself so that they can see the gospel lived out in your life, that you take it seriously. Here's what it also looks like. It looks like adults who care about their productivity enough, who care about the kingdom work enough, that they're willing to put aside their hobbies, their games, the things that waste their time, and instead pick up a Bible or go serve in a ministry 
We had this great event here last week, Serve the City, where we took a Sunday morning, the time when we normally come to worship God in His house. We took a Sunday morning instead to find activities and opportunities for us to get connected in the community, to serve our community, and to bring our gospel to the community. Boy, wouldn't it be nice if we did that more than on a Sunday morning, on our own time? Or what if it looks like this? Adults who are willing to give up the American dream, either delay it or give it up so that they can work to fund the mission of God or so that they can give up their wonderful life that they have planned to become missionaries in a foreign country or even maybe just adopt a child into their home. or maybe just even to tithe to their local church. But people who are willing to put aside the bigger house, the bigger car, to say, I give that up. Because they care more about declaring the glory of God than to having the life now that they've always dreamed they could have. What about faithful friends? Being faithful to your friends over long periods of time and encouraging them in the gospel? What about evangelizing to those who don't know the gospel? What about taking that seriously? But there are some tough ones. What about forgiving enemies? What about being more concerned about the soul of the people who, who has hurt you, the person who has hurt you, than about getting even with them or making them pay. I've seen some amazing ones. I've seen some people here who have ministered to me more than I've ever ministered to them. I've seen husbands and spouses, husbands and wives who have forgiven infidelity in their spouse not because they're primarily concerned about losing their marriage, but because their primary concern is for the heart of their spouse and their discipleship. It's people who have forgiven because they know how much they've been forgiven and who want their spouse to see the glory of God and their forgiveness, to see the gospel. Because that's really the question, isn't it? It's not about, are you willing to declare the glory of God when things are going well? But what about when you're dragged before tribunals, when you're dragged before, when you're persecuted, when you go through difficult times, when you've lost a job, when your house has been flooded? And one of the most significant times, one of the most significant moments in my ministry it was a couple of years ago, about a year and a half ago, when I had the opportunity to walk with a young family through the loss of a child. And they lost the child in, in childbirth, and ugh, it was heartbreaking. But I remember as I was there in the hospital with them, they invited me into the room shortly after the birth, and their family had all gathered at the hospital there, and I had spent my time talking with them, and they finally asked me to come in and meet with them, and I had the opportunity to do that. And as I was talking with the husband and the wife, and as I met their child, and we were discussing it, and we were praying together, in the heartbreak, there was a clarity. And the husband and the wife looked at me, and they said, look, Pastor Brent, we have family here who aren't believers. We have family here who don't know the gospel. And so what we would like is for you to invite everybody to come in for a moment of prayer, and we would like you to share a message about our hope in the gospel. I see things like that. There's a clarity 
that only the people only have if they've seen the glory of God. If their hope is in Him. And when I see those kinds of things, that ministers to me more than anything else. When I see others who have clearly seen the glory of God and they live their lives like they have. Declaring His glory to the people around them. Even in the midst of incredible pain. You see, we are living out this radical new way in which the glory of God dwells among men. It is the great privilege of the church, the body of Christ, to declare God's glory by preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the whole reason the body of Christ is here. That's the whole reason the church is here, is to declare the gospel. And that's why 500 years ago, it mattered. It mattered that the main concern was bringing the gospel back into the center of church life. It mattered. So the final question I have for you today is, are you part of that body? Are you part of that body? Have you seen His glory? And are you willing to declare it? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we... We desire, we want to see your glory. Lord, I pray for this church. I pray for those who have gathered here this morning that you would show them your glory, that you would break through. Lord, it requires a miracle to have your light break through into our lives, to show us who you are, to meet with the God of glory behind the word of God. But once we do, Lord, Once you break through, our lives are forever changed. I pray for everyone here, Lord, that you will break through constantly, not just today, not just tomorrow, but every day. That your light would break through into their lives and that we would be the people of God, the body of Christ, the people who have seen your glory and who are willing to declare it to a world that desperately needs to see it. In your heavenly name we pray, amen.